It is good to be with you guys this morning as um, Joe is still in Colorado um, enjoying a little bit of vacation time, and he'll be back with us um, again next week. So you can be praying for him and his family as they return, um, and also for John. John is, um, he was in Georgia this week for his choir that he helps direct and lead and um, was going to try to make it back this morning, but obviously, as you can tell, did not make it back in time for service this morning. So be praying for him, for his family as they continue traveling back. And then uh, we do encourage you, there are prayer guides out in the lobby um, put together by our search team that just kind of help guide through and make sure that we're being intentional as a church praying for this pastor search process. So I encourage you um, to grab those this morning. As we dive into the text, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. I encourage you to find it in your Bibles and and be ready. We're going to start in verse 15. Um, But before we do, I I need to see who in the the room has seen the show Live PD. Is anybody familiar with the show Live PD or its predecessor, the show Cops? Is anybody familiar with the show Cops? Okay, awesome. I'm seeing enough hands that this this, um, example is going to work this morning. Um, So I'll let you in on a secret. Um, I like the show Cops. I like the show Live PD. I love to watch it. Rachel does too, but um, I love to watch it. And it was a little bit, uh, for me, maybe a a, um, guilty pleasure, because for me, I I love to watch it, and I, I found myself when I'm watching it having the thought of, I just don't understand these people, right? Like, like you watch it, and you're like, I'm glad I don't make stupid decisions like that, right? Like, I mean, like, Let's be honest with ourselves for a second, okay? That's all how we watch that show, right? We're like, I'm glad I'm not that stupid, right? And we think, we think, how am I, right? How do those people do that? Like, yes, obviously, if you run away from the cops, it's not going to end up better than if you'd just gotten pulled over, right? Like, if you have your drugs and your gun sitting out in the seat next to you when the cop walks up to the window, he's going to see that, right? Like, we just can't comprehend how sometimes these people make decisions like this, right? And so we watch this show thinking, I just don't understand, right? I'm glad I'm not those people. Now, I'm going to stretch this analogy a little bit, but I think often when it comes to false teaching or people that walk away from their faith or people that that deconstruct from being a Christian, we look at them like we're watching the show Cops. I just don't understand. I just don't get it. I don't don't see what they see, right? I'm glad I'm not that stupid, right? In some level, we think that about it. And what I want to show us this morning from Colossians is how easy it is to deconstruct, how easy it is to walk away, how easy it is to fall into false teaching, and then what the biblical model is for preventing ourselves from doing that. And so we're going to look at First Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 here, but to do that, we need to do some background to understand what Paul is saying. And so there's some background that we need from Colossians. And so the first thing is Paul has never been to the church in Colossae. He did not found it. He was not the one um, who established this church. It was established by somebody that he converted. And so he's familiar with them, but he's not, um, it's not like he's buddy-buddy. He doesn't know them super well. And so with that, he, he's heard some things about him, and he knows on some level that there's some false teaching going on in the church. That the church was being tempted by some sort of false teaching. What's really interesting about this is realistically, we have absolutely no clue what exactly this false teaching was. It's not like we can say, well, it was this thing or that thing. We have some ideas. We have some, some understanding of, of what may have been taught, but we don't actually know exactly what it is. If you would flip over to, to chapter 2 of Colossians in verse 8, you would see that, that Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. On some level, this seems to be the root of the false teaching. So there was some sort of of philosophy or thinking or some sort of um, extra spiritual knowledge that was going on in the church. Later on, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason, right? And then later on, he says again, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in in promoting self-made religion and the severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So in some way, there seemed to be this, this religion or this teaching among the group of believers, among the church there, that was prideful, that was puffing people up, that was self-made. And so there's two big things that we see that we know about the teaching in Colossae. The first is that in some level, it was rejecting the truth of physical reality. That is, in some level, it was rejecting the truth about how God has created the world and, and man's response to that. That in some way, it was rejecting what was apparent to them. Now, I'm sure you can think of zero examples in modern-day life where people reject the truth of reality. Don't think too hard, right? And the second thing, though, was really interesting is there seemed to be some sort of secret knowledge that these false teachers claimed. Maybe a special revelation, maybe extra knowledge, or that the knowledge had been withheld, but they seemed to believe that, that they had an extra special knowledge from God. Again, don't think too hard, or you might come up with a modern-day example. Right? And so these two factors, right, a rejection of the physical reality and a focus on secret knowledge seem to be the background and the basic underlying thing that Paul is trying to combat, that he's speaking towards. And really what we see is that this is no different than anywhere else in the Bible that talks about false teaching. While the flavor may be different, the substance is the same. And realistically, if we were to read through all of the New Testament, we'd see the Bible goes to great lengths to talk about false teaching. In fact, I think you'd be hard-pressed in pretty much every New Testament letter not to find somewhere where the author warns against false teachers. And so the question we need to ask is, is why does the Bible take, take so much time to talk about false teaching, and why does it care so much about false teaching? It's because there's a truth that, that's really important that we need to understand, and that is this, that our theology— our study of God, what we believe about God, will ultimately lead to doctrine. That is a set of beliefs leading to action. And so our doctrine ultimately is going to lead to action. So our theology leads to doctrine, which leads to action. And so if our theology is wrong, our doctrine will be wrong, and therefore our actions will be wrong. If our theology is correct, our doctrine will be correct, and our actions will be correct. And so false teaching will always express itself in wrong actions. Wrong theology always leads to wrong behavior. And so you see this, right? In the Bible, the Bible makes clear that that wrong theology always leads, false teaching always leads to division, tension, pridefulness, sinfulness, and ultimately what we see here in other places is rejection of God's grace for specific groups of people. That some people aren't good enough for God to save them. That they don't have enough faith, they don't have enough privilege, they don't have power, they don't have money, right? They don't have the right color of skin, whatever it be. They don't have the right background, they don't have the right heritage. Wrong theology will always lead to rejection of the gospel for certain groups of people. And right theology 
always leads to the proclamation of the gospel to everyone. And so the Bible goes to great lengths to let us know that if our theology is wrong, we'll ultimately reject salvation in Christ alone. And the Bible wants to make that important, that we know that we must get our theology right first and foremost if we want our behavior to look right on the back end. And so Paul, this is the background in which Paul is going to tell the Colossians to look to Christ. And so I think really if we, to understand Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, there's two things that we need to understand. He's talking to them about how to prevent false teaching. And the first thing he's going to say is that to prevent false teaching, you need a proper view of Christ's person. That a proper view of Christ's person is what prevents false teaching. Read with me, starting in verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross." And you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So if you look back to verse 15, you see that Paul starts this section with the person of Christ. Right? Why? Because our theology leads to action. We must have our understanding of who God is, right? Theo meaning God, study of God. We must have God correct. And so he begins with the person of Christ. And let's list out some of the things we see, right? So, so Christ is the image of God. He is the creator of all things. He is before all things. He sustains all things. He is the head of the body, Right? He's the firstborn of the dead. He is the fullness of God, and he reconciles all things to himself. Right? All these things are listed. Paul, Paul lists all of these things here. And let's unpack some of these and make sure we understand what Paul's saying. Right? He is the image of God. That's what he starts with in verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. What Paul is saying here is something that if we were to go read John 1, we'd see an echo. John says this in, in the first chapter of his, epist- of his gospel. And what he's saying is is that Jesus is the image of God, meaning that everything we need to know about God can be seen through the person of Christ. He is the revelation of who God is. He makes clear to everyone God's character and God's work. He is the expression of who God is. And so in looking at him, we see God the Father. In fact, Jesus himself will say this. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Right? And so in saying that he is the image of the invisible God, what he's making known is that Jesus is the revelation of all God is. There's nothing more we need than to look at Christ to understand who God is. He has made, he's made known everything that we need to know about God. Right? But he says, he says after that, he says he's before all things. Right? To be before all things means he must be eternal. 
right? Paul is not leaving any room for interpretation. Jesus Christ is eternal, according to Paul. He is before all things, he has always existed, and he will always exist, right? And he's laying out for there something really important, and one of the things that ties through is he's, is he makes this a switch about halfway through, and there seems to be, in some way, in which the, the beginning section, kind of verses 15, 16 into 17, where he's talking about the eternal God, Jesus Christ, eternally existing in relation to the Trinity, right? But then in verse 18, he kind of pivots to when the Christ takes on flesh, and when, and when the God puts on flesh. And so there's a sense, right, in which there's both an eternal existing God, but also a moment in time where God takes on flesh. And so this Jesus that he's talking about is both fully God and fully man. And this whole poem here, this whole hymn here that, that, that Paul lays out is basically to encompass that, that he is God and he is man. And as the God-man, he is the head of the body, or the church, right? That he's the head of the church, meaning that he is the person in charge of the church. He's the person that establishes the church. He's the person that rules over and governs the church. He's the one that sustains the church, protects the church, vindicates the church. Everything about the church is found complete in Christ. He is the one who's established it. He's the one who's ordained it, right? And he's the one that's going to bring it to completion to himself. And we're going to see later how he is the one that purifies his church, And so as head of the church, he's the one that takes responsibility for the church, right? And and he is the firstborn of the dead, right? You see this here. It says he's the firstborn of the dead. That is that he was resurrected. Now, this is an important time to talk about this word firstborn, right? You see throughout um, this entire passage, the word firstborn used a lot. And we need to talk about what it means, because I think uh, as in English, I think we lose some of the meaning of what this word is. When we hear firstborn, we think of somebody physically born, right? They were born first, right? That seems to be the most literal way to define that word. And that makes sense, and there's a sense in which that is correct, right? And, and so, but the question becomes, okay, well, it says he's the firstborn of creation. Does that mean he's created? No, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, it, by using the word firstborn, there is a temporal sense, meaning there is a sense in which it's saying time, that he was first. But in reality, the point of the word firstborn is that he is the instigator. He is the creative idea. He's the driving force. He's the center of that thing, right? He is the firstborn of creation because creation was made through him and by him, right, which is what Paul says, but also because creation was made for him, right? He is the firstborn of the, res- of the dead, right, of resurrection. Now, if you're a Bible scholar in the room, you may be saying, wait a second. Pretty sure there's somebody that resurrects before Jesus, in fact, doesn't Jesus resurrect somebody? Yeah, right? Who is that? Lazarus, right? Jesus resurrects Lazarus. So how can Jesus be the firstborn of the dead if Lazarus was resurrected before him? Because Lazarus' re- resurrection is not necessarily in the same nature as Jesus' resurrection, right? And being in Jesus' firstborn of the dead, our resurrection will one day be like Jesus, not like Lazarus, but like Jesus' resurrection. He is the firstborn of all those will be resurrected because it's by his resurrection that we will be resurrected. And just like he was resurrected to a physical body, we will be resurrected to a new physical body, right? And just like he is pure and holy and blameless in his resurrected body, we will be pure and holy and blameless in our resurrected bodies. 
He is the firstborn of us, us Christians that will be resurrected one day. And so Paul lays this out, right? The, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is the beginning of the resurrection. He is the power that leads to our resurrection. And so he is the firstborn of the dead. And so when we put all this together, one author put it this way, when you put all this passage together, we have a picture of Christ, not just of Lord of the original creation, but who is the instigator and Lord of the new creation. And so here's a summary for you. At its most basic level, the most basic level, to believe in the Christ of the Bible, to believe in Jesus as the Bible teaches, you must believe that he is the eternal God, sovereign over all, who stepped down into creation, taking on human flesh for the purpose of bringing himself glory. He died on the cross to reconcile sinners to himself. And that group of sinners is the church that he now rules over. To believe anything different than that is to not believe in the God of the Bible and not to believe Jesus as the Bible presents him. And so to prevent false teaching, you must believe that. There's more, there's depth there, right? I'm not even beginning to scratch the surface of the passage. In fact, I encourage you this week to go back and study this passage. Because realistically, I think I could probably spend a couple sermons just on verse 15. We don't have the time to unpack every single detail of what Paul's laying out here, right? This is incredibly dense. But on a basic level, what Paul's saying is, the Colossians, to prevent false teaching, must believe accurately in who Jesus is. And so at our base level, we must believe that the Bible tells us who Jesus is, and we must believe the Jesus the Bible reveals. Because if we believe anything different, we will fall into false teaching. And so dig into this this week. Go back and read this this week and unpack every single detail, all the ways, right, in which Paul is alluding to Old Testament passages like we read. Um, go back to, to some of the Proverbs that, Paul, that Joe has read and walked through, right, where it talks about wisdom and see all the ways in which Jesus is the embodiment of that wisdom, right? Go back and read Old Testament passages where we see God creating, where we see God and see how Jesus is the completion of that, how he lives all that out. Go and pack all of that and understand that you must get Jesus right if you want to avoid false teaching. But this passage doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't just stop with the person of Jesus. You see, because what he says is that to prevent false teaching, a proper view of Christ's work is important. It's not just Christ's person, but a proper view of Christ's work prevents false teaching. If you want to be vaccinated, right, against false teaching, you must have the vaccine of Christ's work. Okay, maybe that's stretching the analogy a little bit too far, but you get the point, right? Christ's work is just as important as Christ's person in understanding and being preventing false teaching. And so the necessary question then is, what is Christ's work? What has Christ done? And Paul, thankfully, gives us the answer. Christ's work is that of reconciling alienated sinners to himself through his death on the cross to present them to himself as holy for the purpose of his glory. Or to put simply, as one person did, the Lord has come to claim what is rightfully his. 
That is what Christ has done. So logistically, let's look at this. Look at verse 21. Logistically, what we have. He says, and you, meaning you Christians, you you Christians in Colossae, you Christians were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The reality is, whether you're a Christian or not, you are, at one time, either have been or currently are, alienated to God, doing evil deeds, hostile in mind to the things of God. You are an enemy of God. You are deserving of God's wrath. You are a sinner who has rebelled against God. You have broken and disobeyed what God has called you to do. And that goes down to the core of who you are. You are by nature a sinner, guilty before God. And so we start with alienated, hostile people doing evil deeds. But in 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, you to God. He has reconciled. Why? Why is Christ reconciled? What is the work that Christ has done? It's he came. He lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, right? Living the life that we could not, completing the law, being above reproach, doing everything that we were commanded to do but could not do. And from there, he dies on the cross, right? In his physical body, right? His fleshly body, a real life physical body, just like yours, died on that cross 2,000 years ago. Not some spiritual body, not some thing, but a real life physical person died on that cross 2,000 years ago. A body of flesh was pierced for our sins, And so Christ dies on that cross to reconcile us to himself. And and what Paul's doing here is something really important, especially given the false teaching that was there, is Paul is reinforcing the necessity of the cross as a one-time historical event that actually happened. Here's what I mean by that. First of all, the cross is not theoretical. Right? Lots of religions are theoretical or theological or philosophical. I don't know if that's a word, but I just made it one, right? Lots of religions exist in somebody's head, but the Christian religion is based on what actually happened in human history. And so what Paul is saying is, is that the foundation for false teaching is the belief that Christ really did actually physically die. And that that, right, is enough and sufficient once and for all. And so here's another thing that Paul's laying out for them, right? That Christ's work actually happened, but that it was one-time thing. There's a false teaching that believes that, that we partner with God in salvation. And this takes a bunch of different flavors, right? And it's prevalent in evangelical circles, that we, some, that we sometimes how partner with God to bring about our salvation. What Paul's saying here is that it was the completed work of Christ that brings about salvation. You're not partnering with God. God is doing the work. And he's saving you, and now he's bringing you into to to live in obedience to him. But the salvation that you rest in is the completed work of God. Because it's built, and it's based on the one-time completed event of Christ's death on the cross. Why? Why does that pay the price? Why does Christ's death pay the price for our sins? It's because of what he says in verse 20. In verse 20, he talks about the blood of the cross. See, the reality is your sin deserves the wrath of God and death. And Jesus takes both those. He dies on the cross, shedding his blood for your sins, taking the wrath of God that you deserve. 
And so Christ dies on the cross for you. And this allows reconciliation. He pays the price for your sin, and he reconciles two parties together. Right? Paul and other and other places will talk about how salvation is like a courtroom, right? Where, 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 where Jesus has made us justified, he's made us sanctified, and he talks about all these things. But here, he's talking about something very intimate, how Christ's death reconciles relationally, right? Christ's death relationally reconciles to bring us back into good relationship with God, right? No longer are we alienated. No longer are we estranged. No longer are we far off. We're brought into union with God through the finished work of Christ. So what does that mean? To believe the work of Christ that the Bible lays out means at its most basic level, you believe that while we were sinners, Christ died on the cross, physically dying and taking the wrath of God that we deserved. And he did this for the purpose of paying the, paying the price once and for all for our sins. And then after that, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, he rose again as the firstborn of the dead. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting to return to judge the earth. You must believe that all of that is 100% true and has been accomplished. And it will be accomplished one day to believe what the Bible says about the work of God. And Paul makes this clear in verse 23. He makes it clear, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. That Jesus Christ, being fully God and fully man, came, lived, and died for your sins and because of them to reconcile you to himself for the purpose of his glory. And so to believe anything else is to not trust the gospel. If you believe anything else but what Paul lays out here, you are not saved because you have not put your hope in Christ alone for salvation. You have not trusted in the gospel. And so take a moment and realize how easy it is to become like the church in Colossae. Captivated not by Christ and him crucified, but as Paul put it, the appearance of wisdom, human tradition, or self-made religion. You see, we say, we look at others and we say, I just don't understand. I just don't get it. But I don't think we're that far away. It was put this way this week. I, I was talking with, with Tim Benham about this passage. And we were talking about, about a specific word in here. And that word's preeminent. Look at verse 18. I think this is, this is the word this whole passage hangs upon. This word preeminent. And he put it in a way that, that really sobered me and really made me think. And he said, most people, when they read that word preeminent, what they hear is prominent. Here's what I mean. They hear and they think that Jesus should be prominent, that he should be important, that he should be a big deal, that he should take a lot of time, that he should be uh, an important focus, that he should be everywhere. And in some ways, they're, they're right. That is true. But the word is not prominent. The word is preeminent, meaning first, before everything. Christ is preeminent, meaning that he is before. He, he controls, he dictates, he's in charge, he's the head of. He is before anything and everything. And so the reality is, is that in our lives, if Christ is not preeminent, we have not trusted in the Jesus the Bible presents. 
If Jesus is prominent in our lives, we have put our hope in something that is false. In fact, I can prove this to you. There are plenty of false teachers where Jesus is prominent. In fact, think about it. The Mormons talk a lot about Jesus. Jesus is pretty prominent in the Mormon circles. They care a lot about Jesus, but he's not preeminent. There is plenty of false teaching. To Muslims, Jesus is pretty prominent. They'll talk about Jesus. They care about Jesus, but he's not preeminent. He's not Lord of all, right? Joel Osteen talks a lot about Jesus. In fact, I would say, in Joel Osteen's teaching, Jesus is prominent, but he's not preeminent. Jesus serves Joel Osteen instead of Joel Osteen serving Jesus. Paul White, you, you name him. False teachers make a big deal of Jesus. They make Jesus prominent. But what they don't do is make Jesus preeminent, meaning that everything is in service to Christ and his glory. And so see how easy it is to fall into the trap of false teaching. If you don't ground everything in Jesus and what he's done, you will make Christ prominent and think you're fine, but you will not make him preeminent. You will not make him first. And so whatever false teaching someone falls into, ultimately, their failure is a simple one. They made the gospel about themselves instead of about Christ. And so as we close, I want you to realize how easy and dangerous of a trap that is to fall into. As sinners, we naturally want to make things about ourselves. We naturally want to make the gospel about us. But the reality is is that the gospel is first and foremost about God bringing glory to himself by reconciling alienated sinners for the only purpose of his glory. And so we could spend all day asking, why does God decide that's the case? I don't have a good answer for you besides he has. And praise be to God for it. And so here's my question to you. As you're sitting in your seat this morning, examine your own life. Honestly, look and answer this question. Is Christ preeminent or is he prominent? Do I make a big deal about Christ, but ultimately he's there for me? Or do I exist to bring him glory? And so as you're sitting there, if you're thinking that, and you realize, I've been led astray. As you realize that, that, yeah, I could maybe say Christ was prominent, but he's never been preeminent. He's never been first and foremost in my life. I've never trusted in him alone to save me. I have good news for you this morning. Today, you can turn from your sins and trust in the God-man, Jesus Christ, to reconcile you from sin and alienation and to bring you into relationship with the perfect, holy, sinless, good God. You can be saved this morning. You can be reconciled this morning by the completed work of Jesus Christ. So will you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ to save you? Will you do that this morning? And maybe you're sitting there and you realize that I have done that. I know I'm trusting in Christ for salvation. Then I have a question for you. Will you be obedient to verse 23? 
Will you be obedient to the command of God in verse 23 to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard and which has been proclaimed in all creation? Will you this morning commit to being steadfast in who Christ is and what he's done? To be stable and that your hope is found in Christ alone. Will you be obedient to the commands of God this morning? And so wherever we are, let's put our hope and trust in Christ alone to save us. Let's stand and sing together.